0: Good morning. Our New Testament reading today is from Revelation chapter four, verses one through eleven. It can be found on pages or on page thirteen thirteen of your pew Bible. But first let's pray. O oh Lord, your word truly is a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. Send your spirit to light our way as we read your word today. Give us eyes to see all that you want us to see. Give us ears to hear all that you want us to hear and hearts that might be transformed at the reading of your holy word. In your son's precious name we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Revelation chapter 4, 1 through 11. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper, and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. The twenty-four elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne, and worship him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive honor and glory and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Hey mom, I almost died. Can we go home now? I was probably nine or ten when I when I went and told my mom those words and I don't actually remember that part. I remember everything that led up to it. Uh, I had some friends, we were growing up in Pennsylvania and I had some friends that lived at this really old house and had a barn and it had been part of the underground Railroad. So There were all kinds of trap doors and hidden closets and all kinds of things like that. So naturally, what does a nine- or a 10-year-old want to do? play hide-and-go-seek? So we did. We went, and my friend Maddie and I were playing hide-and-go-seek out in the barn, and uh, uh, he was really good at it, because he knew where all those, all those tricks were, and I wasn't that familiar. So I was looking for him for, for a while, and then I you know, climbed up the stairs to the second level of the barn, finally found a door that I'd never opened before. I'd never even seen it there. I thought, that's it, he's right there. So I was ready to bust in. I opened the door and started to step out, and I looked down, and I don't know what kind of equipment it was, but all I remember seeing are blades. And there's my foot. I'm holding onto the door, and there's my foot. And I was starting to move forward, and somehow that door just kind of closed closed back and I came back in but I still remember that feeling uh, even now of staring down at that feeling some anxiety and some fear but more than that just this overwhelming feeling of what's about to happen and we've all felt that haven't we we know what it's like to have that kind of unrest that, that where you're asking the question can my marriage survive this what's going to happen after I graduate What's life going to be like for my kids or my grandkids? Are the bullies at school ever going to leave me alone? Is this treatment going to be effective? Who am I going to vote for? Or can I even vote? We live in a time of unrest, whether it's politics or which bathroom to use or, or, or something at home. We live in this time of unrest where we're looking down at something, wondering, what's about to happen? Because I really don't know. Well, At this time in our passage, uh, which we're going to be reading from Isaiah 6, and at this time in our passage, Israel was in a time of unrest. The kingdom's been divided into the north and the south. So in the north you have Israel, and then in the south you have Judah. Uh, Now, the people... uh, you know the kings were, were kind of going one of two ways you you kind of have this cycle you might have a good king and then a bad king and then a good king and then a bad king. You might have a bad king, bad king, good king, good king, but it 's always changing over and it 's changing over fairly quickly. But then you have this king, king Isaiah who 's a good king, uh, but under him you still have these prophets that are coming in, and the prophets are talking to two groups of people they 're talking to the unfaithful and they 're calling them to repentance because they 're warning that judgment 's coming. But then they're talking to the faithful who are living in the middle of this unrest and they're telling them something that's gonna get them through the unrest they're in now and all that's gonna come. So we're gonna look at Isaiah 6, one through eight. Isaiah 6, one through eight. It's page 726 in your pew Bible or 224 if you're reading in the story. But before we read this, let's pray. Heavenly Father, work in our hearts, Holy Spirit, Make us holy. Help us to understand the word that you're trying to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, Having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. Our passage starts with the death of a king. And I mentioned he was one of the good kings for most of his life. It was a time of prosperity. Things, people were relatively safe. But near the end of his life, he started to stray, started trying to take on more power, started trying to take on the priestly roles. He goes into the temple to make a sacrifice and the priests are trying to stop him and he goes into a fit of rage and God judges him and gives him leprosy and then he dies. And now the people are sitting here wondering, what's gonna happen next? Is he gonna be a good king? Is he gonna keep our, our wealth safe? Is he gonna keep us keep us safe? Or is he going to be like Solomon's son? Is he going to hike up the taxes and say, I don't care what you think. I'm doing what I want. What kind of a king is this going to be? And in the midst of this unrest, God sends Isaiah to share this vision of his call. look at it. There are two angels above. They have six wings. These things are powerful. Their voice is shaking everything around them. But in the presence of God... They cover their eyes and they cover their feet God is holy 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 R.C. Sproul talks about this saying this is God's transcendent purity it's not just that God has no spot that has no blemish that there's no darkness in him it's that God is so other he's not a person he's not an angel he's not a created being he's God and he's holy, and that holiness describes God's separateness. And in the middle of this, Isaiah is reminded of all that God is. He's reminded that his love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His spirit is Holy Spirit. And Isaiah feels the weight of this on him, and the presence of God convicts him, because being near holiness has a way of showing us the areas in which we're not holy. Being near something so holy shows us how we're different. It'd be like, you know, Tascosa just had their prom last night. It'd be like somebody showing up in jean shorts and a t-shirt. You would notice the difference. And here, Isaiah notices the difference, and it convicts him. Now, if we read through the first five chapters, we can get an idea of what some of Judah's sins are. As a nation, They're pretending to worship God, but they don't really care. They're amassing all this wealth, but they're doing it irresponsibly, and they don't care about the people around them. They're taking bribes, condemning the innocent. They're lying. They're getting drunk. You get the picture. But what does Isaiah say in the presence of God? I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Because in the presence of an almighty God, even the smallest thing stands in contrast to his holiness. And even the words from Isaiah's lips pale in comparison to this great and holy king. That's why in the presence of God, he doesn't just convict us the way he convicts Isaiah. He also changes us. And he makes us aware of those things that need to change. Look at verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. There is something about the presence of God that would consume us if there wasn't a change. There's something about the presence of God that Isaiah standing there looking at this holy king He would be destroyed if something didn't change. And so what does God do? God, before Isaiah even asks, God has an angel take the coal and cleanse him and atone for his sin. See, that's a picture of the gospel right there. The gospel isn't about making good people better. Isaiah could have been standing there saying, but God, what about all these things? God's not looking at that. He's not trying to make a good person better. He's trying to make a sinner into a saint. That's the gospel, that we serve a God who makes sinners into saints. If you look at one of the worst churches ever recorded in the Bible, as far as morals go, it's the church of Corinth. But do you know how Paul addresses them? In chapter one, verse two of 1 Corinthians, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, that means made holy in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, holy ones, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He calls them saints. He calls them holy ones. Ones who have been made holy. In the the middle of their mess, in the middle of their mess, Christ is like that coal from the fire, but even more so, even greater, to make them holy. And it works immediately. Immediately and it is effective. And now they have to live it out, but they are declared holy. It's like the change that happens at a wedding. When when the preacher says, you are now man and wife, something changed. They are man and wife. Or it's like sitting on the sidelines waiting, and the the coaches are going to be picking teams, you know, at a pickup game. And the coach looks at you and he says, I want you on my team. You know what? You're on the team right then, that's when you're on the team. Now you're gonna have to go start living it out. You're gonna have to start playing in the game and you're gonna have to play and act as someone on that team. But in that moment, you're on the team and when God says, you are holy, you're made holy. We can't just sit in the conviction. When we come in the presence of God, we can't just sit there in the conviction being reminded of where we've fallen short. We have to hold on to that promise We have to hear our Lord saying, I have made you holy. And once he does that, it enables us to begin to live out that call. So in the presence of God, God convicts us, and then God changes us, and then he sends us. Once Isaiah had been in the presence of God, once the coal had touched his lips and he became able to respond and even to hear the voice of God, look what happens in verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Now Isaiah can hear and now thinking about the overwhelming joy of what God has done for him, how he's been forgiven, how he's been made holy. What else could Isaiah say except for... Here I am, send me. And so God sent him. And God sent him with a message that we see through the rest of Isaiah. And the message again is that the unfaithful are facing judgment. And if you are in this camp of the unfaithful, you need to get over here because this is, there's gonna be judgment coming. But to the faithful who loved God and his word, who were going to endure those hard times along with the rest of the country, they got an even better message, and it's the same message that gives us hope. Just a short while later, in the next chapter, Isaiah talks about the Messiah. So something we hear at Christmas. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The message. That Isaiah was sent to give is not only this vision of this holy God, but of a holy God who was going to come to us, of a Messiah who would make us holy once for all. The coal from the altar that would touch our lips, the language that Isaiah goes on to use talking about Christ. He took our pain, bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. His punishment Brought us peace. His wounds healed us. That's the message that Isaiah goes on to share. And so the question is why does God, in the midst of this unrest, in the midst of this time, why does He show them this vision where Isaiah is convicted, where He's changed, where He's sent? This happens in chapter 6. This happens after Isaiah's already been writing. He didn't start at the beginning with his call like most of the others would do. He waits until you can feel it. You can feel the unrest. But it's because this is the process through which we're saved. And this is the process where we receive something that can never, ever be taken away from us Jesus, the Messiah through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. He brought us something that nothing, nothing and nobody can take away from us. Not you, not me, not ISIS, not the Republicans or the Democrats or the principal or the bullies or the liars or divorce or even death itself. Nothing and nobody can can take away what Christ has brought to us. That's the message. That's why Isaiah goes on to say that though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. If you belong to Christ, he has done something in you that is untouchable. It is unchangeable. It is unshakable. No matter what unrest surrounds you, no matter what happens to you, no matter what you do, you can't be touched. This is, the, this, is the, this is the message that every martyr carries in their Death is that even death can't take this away from them. And that's the message that Isaiah finds in the presence of God. And that's the message that we find in the presence of God and that God calls us to share. In God's presence, we find conviction But we find the grace that changes us, and we are reminded of the good news that Christ is in us. That if you belong to Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and nobody, nobody can take that away from us. That vision and revelation of being before the throne of God, we will be there. And that process refines us again and again and again in the times of greatest unrest when we go to the presence of God. This message and God himself is that door that keeps us from falling down onto whatever's below us. It's that gentle wind or the hand of God or whatever it was that pushes the door back to give us security. So how do we, how do we get there? How do we find ourselves in the presence of God? The first thing is to remember if you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside you. God himself lives in you. But Jesus also said, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. God's given us the Bible, which we can even carry around on our phone now, the word of God through which the Holy Spirit speaks to us. We come here, we worship together in the presence of God. We take communion together in the presence of God. We can go to God in prayer. You know, recently Anna and I had a a, a tough situation with someone and, and we, we just had bad attitudes about it, or at least I did. And, and, and after a lot of that unrest, Anna very wisely said, let's pray. I said, I've been praying. And she said, let's pray together. I said, I don't want to pray together. <laughs> and she said, let's do it anyway. I said, well, you can pray. I'll sit with you. And even in my stubbornness and my hardness of heart, when we sat together, And we said, God, guide us. God, lead us. God, you are holy. Make us holy. We were reminded of his presence. We were reminded of his holiness and what he calls us to. And it changed the way we looked at things. It changed the way we felt. It changed us. When we're reminded of the presence of God, we will be convicted. We will be changed. And then you will hear the voice of the Lord saying, who will go? And when you hear your king ask, what will you say? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, be with us. Guide us. Holy Spirit, make us holy. Lord, help us to live out the call in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Good morning. Will just got a lot older. He walked out, I walked in. So that, that's how it works. The, um, okay, there is a bulletin that you all uh, often get on Sundays. Excuse me. A bulletin, uh, hopefully you see these. And if you notice in these bulletins, they have some prayer requests on the back of the page. And you may have wondered through the years, it, one usually says, Unreached People dego on it. You're thinking, what is that? Well, for over 20 years, we have prayed for the Digo. The Digo is a, and you're going to hear more about that in a second, but it's a Muslim people group. There you go. The Digo are right down there in Kenya. The Digo are about 100,000 Muslim people group that we have prayed for for years. Um, and we, and, and a lot of these things, you're kind of wondering what's on here. It's also kind of an interesting thing. They're also, we alphabetize you all, members of the church, if you're a member here, we alphabetize how to pray for you all. So if you see your name on there, it doesn't mean you're sick.